Thanks for downloading this podcast. podcast. It's for personal use only and must not be rebroadcast, reproduced or used in any form without permission. Tell your friends they can get their own copy by searching iTunes for Radio Le Mans or visiting RadioLeMans.com. Hello there and welcome to another Tyler's Long One. And if you don't know what this is all about, a few years ago, Graham Tyler, one of our pit reporters at Le Mans, came up with the idea of sitting down and doing a slightly longer form interview than we normally do with someone that's one of the great or the good of sports car racing. Now, it's not always Graham that manages to be around for these interviews and hopefully I'll be an adequate substitute today where our victim, or should I say our subject, is Oliver Gavin. We, I want to sort of start almost at the very beginning, but certainly at the beginning of your motor racing career. We know you so much now for the last, what, 11 years of being with Corvette Racing. You had a fairly traditional start to motor racing in that you went karting, first of all. Yes, I mean, I started off when I was 11 years old, started karting, and it was through actually a friend of ours in the village, um, Dr. David Rhodes, and he had a son, James, who was just started off in karts. My father was wondering what he was going to do with my brother and I over the weekends. He was starting a business up, didn't have much time with us. So then he, he, he thought, well, I need to do something with them over the weekends. And so J- uh, David Rhodes said, well, okay, bring your lads along, bring them down to Rye House in, 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 in Hertfordshire and, and uh, have a jump in the cart and let them have a go. And so did that and absolutely loved it. And my brother loved it. And uh, you know, my, on the way home, my father said to both of us, he says, right, I can afford to buy a cart between the two of you. Why don't we buy one? He bought one and we ran it around some car parks for about six months and just generally messed around. And then uh, we started entering races, and uh, we did that uh, sort of all the way through the sort of mid to late eighties. And then uh, it was really nineteen ninety that I then looked towards cars and started off in the uh, Formula First Winter Series at Brands Hatch. Won, I think, my third race there. I remember that 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 Winter Series being extremely cold, extremely wet. And I think we only actually did one race in the dry. One race was snowed off completely. I mean, it, it was it was it was crazy racing and though, and, and the formula first is 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 by no means a fantastic single seater not sophisticated i don't think you could call it could you N- no it's certainly not sophisticated <laughs> i mean i i think that uh, even by the standards of the day it wasn't sophisticated never by never mind by today's standards i think ralph Furman actually when he decided to make that car he just thought oh, i've got a load of old scrap bits left over from all these formula fords i've been building i've just slapped together some formula first car and mountain engine in the back of it some fiesta engine i think was put in the back of it all the weight distribution was all wrong but it, it's amazing how many lads that now are racing started off in 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 formula first i think darren was one of them and uh darren turney yeah. darren turney yeah and and uh you know so him and i have both been through the formula first school and then i went on to racing in 91 in, in formula first i won the championship in that and and I, I then went on to, to driving a number of different things in in 91 Vauxhall lotus formula renault 
Uh, and then they did the Formula Ford Festival uh, that year. Uh, I think it was Mark Goosen's one in 91. And, uh, but it all culminated in me being uh, um, nominated for the Young Driver of the Year Award, McLaren Autosport Young Driver of the Year Award, at the end of that year. Well, effectively your first full season of racing. Yes, yes. It, it was the end of my first full season of racing that, that I, I got nominated for that. And, uh, and uh, I think there was uh, Dina Morelli. There was Jonathan McGall. Guy Smith was in it. And Dario. Dario Franchitti was in it, and I ended up winning. And so it was an amazing night at the Grosvenor House Hotel. I ended up being given the trophy by uh, the late and great uh, Ayrton Senna. So Sterling Moss was there as well. I, I sat in the uh, in the McLaren, had my picture taken. I've got it on my wall at home uh, in in the, in the hallway with uh, me sitting in, in in the McLaren and Senna on one side of the car and Sir Sterling Moss on the other. And uh, uh, yeah, it was an amazing night, and uh, I spent most of the night leading up to the presentation of the awards in in the bathroom uh, or in the toilet, absolutely crapping myself, thinking this is just never. Oh, it's just one of those. But the guys that you're talking about, who you were up for that award with, they would have all had several seasons of pretty decent national class motor racing under their belt. I think so. I mean, it's it, it's difficult. You know, it's a little while ago now, and and you know, at the time it was it was very vivid. I think that we were all in our first or possibly our second year. Mm. You know, I remember the test day very clearly. You know, it was a very dry, cold day at Donington Park, and and they they wanted to stick me out in the Formula Three car. I'd never driven that before, and uh, I just went out and I, I I thought, you know, this is really pretty much make or break. I've really got to nail it. And the very first corner, I nearly went straight off the track and straight into the barrier. I don't know how I didn't do it, but I managed. To get it recover, get it all back together, and then I, I started nailing some laps, and and I think that was a real cornerstone to me winning that award. So, so how old were you at this point? I would have been at that point. I would have been eighteen. Right. So first full season of motor racing behind you, eighteen years old. You get nominated and subsequently win the UK's foremost young driver award, as it always has been. Now. I have to say at this point that you're not a short lad. I'm actually I'm six two. I mean, depending on the day, you know, I'm at six one and a half, six two, six three. But I'm I'm around about six two. It has been something that shaped my career. Mm. And you know, when I moved on from doing all of the the sort of single seater stuff, I, I eventually was through into Formula Three in in, in ninety three and then nineteen ninety five. And when I won the championship in nineteen ninety five, Peter Briggs, who I was driving for, a uh, you know, great. Peter Briggs, you know, he gave me two fantastic seasons in Formula 3 at Enbridge Racing. He he actually went away to Delara and said, look, we need to make a special roll hoop for Oliver. We need to get the the tub, the new, the, the Delara chassis tub, uh, made with um, a larger sort of bulkhead for my knees. Uh, you know, they, they homologated a special car for me. So, I mean, it was, it, yeah, it was, it was really, they did some special stuff. I, I remember, would it have been 93? I think I first saw you came set was it that the year you came second in the championship to Kel- and Kelvin Burke won yeah, the championship. Right. You had a crack and battle yeah. with Kelvin all the yeah. way through, yeah. and then you went away for a season in '94 to do 3000, yeah. and that wasn't successful at all for you. Well, I mean, the, the battle with with Kelvin was was to start with was was really nothing. You know, it was just I was in a rolt and things weren't going very well, and 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 Peter. And uh, Ian Morgan, who was my engineer then, who's now at Red Bull, um, uh, you know, we were all scratching our heads on how to make this role work and we just couldn't get it going. And then we'd seen that Delara was running well in the hands of Warren Hughes and, and Stephen Arnold. And so Peter had the great, you know, foresight to go, right, let's, let's go to Italy. Let's get ourselves a Delara. 
and see if we can make that work. And I went over to Dallara to the factory there, um, had a seat fitting there. We ran the the, the car at uh, the small little racetrack just down the road, and and it was all just like a dream. You know, the car was just fantastic, like a complete, almost like a different class category to to the Rolt. And um, we turned up at the first race with that. At, I think it was at um, Silverstone. And uh, we started to wipe the floor. And, uh, you know, I think I had five, four or five wins on the trot. And then all of a sudden, PSR realised that they needed a switch. They needed. A switch. That was Paul Stewart Racing, for yeah. those that don't know that, which the team that eventually became, effectively, eventually became Jaguar Formula One in several iterations down the road, which actually has become Red Bull. Yes. Uh, several iterations down yeah. the road. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Well, um, uh, Paul Stewart Racing uh, got themselves a couple of Dallaras and Kelvin just switched it on and, and uh, I mean, he started performing brilliantly. And there was a couple of events where we were we were pretty close and I beat him and then I think he beat me. and then But he had managed to, to, to get a, a really decent points total to, to sort of at the start of the year when we were driving around in the Rolts. And then he did make his experience pay as well in the middle part of the year and he really nailed the car at a couple of events. And, and I maybe wasn't as experienced as him at setting the car up and really making it work. And um, he ended up winning the championship. But it was a really good battle and, and uh, you know I really enjoyed that season. 94 was just, it was just a season of just wrong things. Just so many things just went wrong. Was it an obvious decision to go to 3000? And, and did you think, well, okay, I've nailed this racing driver thing now. I've, I've won the Young Driver of the Year. I've had a couple of decent seasons behind. I was challenging for, and, and let's not forget, the British Formula 3 in those days was the Formula 3 championship around the world. That was the one that everybody wanted on their CV. I've come second in that. I, I'm, I might be able to make a career out of this, so I'm going to head up the ladder straight away. Well, Peter Briggs was telling me, no, you need another season in Formula 3, and, and, and I think he was right. I mean, he... He he said to me, look, Oliver, we, we've started off very well with this Dallara chassis in 93. Um, you know, we've got a great team around us. Stick with us. We know what we're going to do. We can really have a great challenge at the, at the championship. You know, you know all the circuits. You know, you know the, the, the championship itself. Let's not get carried away. And But I think at the time... The momentum was for me to keep moving up the ladder each year, you know. So I'd I'd done Formula First in '91, I'd done uh, Vauxhall Lotus in '92 with John Village Racing, which is a great season. Finished second in that, and uh, great racing against Pierce Honeyset and, and and David Sears Racing. And uh, then uh, we, we moved to Formula Three in '93 and had that second. And and you know it was all about keeping that momentum going. So Formula had Three you, had you had you realised at that point that there was an opportunity for you to make a, a living in inverted commas out of this, to be a professional racing driver, or were you still you know, was it still something that you're not doing in your spare time because at that level you can't, but was it still something that you were doing not as a pro effectively? Well, I think Peter Briggs said to me that year in 93, and maybe it was that sort of switch between 93 and 94 you know, he was saying to me, Ollie you can make a living at driving race cars. You're good enough to make a living at driving race cars. He said, whether you make it to Formula One or not, he said, that is completely in the lap of the gods. He said, that's just whether it's the right time, right place, right team, right car, uh, money. 
you know, somebody just coming in with a boatload of money and you're just standing there on the sidelines. Um, he said, it's, it's, it's just Russian roulette. You know, you just never know what's going to happen. And he said, but if you wanted to now switch your attention, you know, and, 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 you know, do another season of Formula 3 and then after that, switch your attention to sports cars or touring cars or something else like that, he says, you can make a living from doing this. He said, you don't have to keep chasing the dream all the time, but every driver's every driver that's in single well, you're 20 20 odd year old you know you you still you're still reaching for the stars don't you completely you know and and it takes uh, it takes a pretty special person to not want to you know race against the best guys in the world in the ultimate machines and and really reach for the top and reach for the stars so is that partially behind what was that idea of going to Formula 3000 and what was a pr- in, in fairness I'm sitting there next to you now and it's a few years back down the road I can probably say it was a pretty disastrous season for you pretty disastrous decision actually it, it was and you know w- w- there's a couple of things that happened you know in, in 94 that really shaped my next few years one was that we, we got talking with Pacific Grand Prix mm-hmm. and they had a 3000 team that they ran pretty well in 93 and David uh, Coulthard had driven for them and they'd had some good good results and uh, it was being run by Ian Dawson and, and Keith Wiggins was was at the top and um but but Wiggy was so focused on the F1 thing that we were almost like a sort of a, a bit part you know we weren't we weren't really being taken that seriously they were sort of sort of bringing us along and sort of saying look you can run in the 3000 team and also be the test driver for the Formula 1 car and and you know test drivers were just really coming into uh, you know being fashionable in Formula 1 at that point you know uh, really, the, the the drivers like uh, all the teams like Williams and McLaren were using them pretty heavily, but you know, obviously got massive, massive budgets. Well, you know, Pacific didn't have the money to run a Formula One team, and they were telling me or telling us uh, that uh, you know they had the money to run a three thousand team and a Formula One team out of this tiny little unit in Thetford. And we just didn't see it. We just didn't see the wood from the trees. And we were so... You were getting offered a... In your head, I'm sure at that point, you were saying, what was... You, you, all of that's going on. You're hearing drive a Formula One car, aren't you? Completely. That's, that's, what you, that's, that's what every driver's chasing towards and going, right, okay, you know, I'll be a test driver and then that's going to open doors for me to be a, a race driver. And it goes on and on and on and on and on. And 94 was just written off with just uh, being... Promised so much, never delivering, nothing happening. Me having to go sort of off to an, a very small little team uh, run by uh, Paul Cherry and Roger Orgy at Meagerland. And that lasted like three or four races. It was a disaster and ended up with quite a big crash at Poe, wrote a chassis off. Um, we were running around at the back. And all of a sudden, all that momentum that I built up over the previous three seasons was just evaporating. And so at the end of 94, I went, we went back to see Peter. And he got me in a Formula 3 race at Donington, and I finished second to uh, Christoph Tinso. Peter was running the car for me with Toshiba Money, and uh, Christoph Tinso come over, and I think in an Apomatox Formula 3 car, and they'd, they'd won, but we, we came second. And, um, you know, it, it then set me up to do a full season in 95 with, with Peter and Edenbridge Racing. At the point of your lowest ebb in 94, how close was, was that to, you know, as you look back on it now, was that close to ending your association with motor racing or did you did you have the maturity in yourself and the people around you to be able to say having had all that success and that momentum as you described to be able to say we can we can battle through this or was it just a real shock to the system a realization perhaps of of reality 
I think it was a, a pretty much a, a, a pretty big shock. You know, my father and my mother have been, you know, wonderful supporters of, all the way through my racing career. And, you know, we got to that, that season in 94 and I suppose we just, the bubble burst on, on, on the, you know, everything was going so swimmingly well. And yes, we'd had some little ups and downs, but generally things had always been on the upward, you know, we'd been, we'd been going, you know, up the ladder. Now all of a sudden we got to 94 and just everything, just the rug just was pulled from underneath our, our, our feet. And we were really struggling to, to see, the way forward and, and and Peter was the one that really sort of came back to us and said look you know here's the opportunity and uh, you know we've got an awful lot to thank Peter for um, yeah. That was a cracking year when you went back to Formula 3 you won the British Championship um, in some ways did that make that victory perhaps even a little more sweet? Yeah I suppose I suppose it did make it, it, it pretty sweet I mean you know we were at that point no other team had won the British Formula 3 Championship other than Paul Stewart Racing for, I think, three, four, maybe five seasons. And I think if you look over that sort of mid-90s period, Edenbridge Racing and the victory that we had, was that was the only sort of blip for... Paul Stewart Racing on that in that whole period of sort of nine. It was driving for PSR that year. It was uh, Ralph Furman and Helio Castroneves. So not exactly, you know, rabbits by any stretch of the imagination. No, they, they, you know, they were both very fast, very quick. You know, we were all a little bit inexperienced and all a little bit, still a little bit green. But it was my second season, and so maybe I, that's what I had over those guys. Uh, but um, uh, you know, it was a tough season. You know. Andy Miller and, and Paul Stewart Racing were running fantastic cars and, and they were super quick at certain racetracks. I mean, at, at, there was one race at uh, Brands Hatch on the short circuit that they were just absolutely dynamite at and we couldn't touch them. And But then as the season went on, we got closer and closer and closer and the rivalry between uh, Ralph and I got pretty heated and uh, it, it was it got a little bit crazy at one point he had me on the grass coming out of uh, cops at Silverstone and we were banging wheels and it all got rather heated and a bit silly and I think he got thrown out by the stewards and and uh, we ended up going to the very last race equal on points in fact Helio Ralph and myself were all equal on points going into the last race not a bad way to end a championship but not for you guys of course great great for us that we're standing on the grass banks yeah exactly and and uh, and as it turned out you know it was just pretty much a straightforward race whoever whoever finished in front of the other was was going to win the championship and 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 we had got ourselves together and Ian Morgan was was still engineering me he did an amazing job all season and keeping my head together and uh you know he, he did a did a fine job that day and uh, engineered us through to to finishing third uh, behind Warren I think Jamie Davis was second and uh and we ended up um, you know beating both of Paul Stewart racing cars and, and and winning the championship and and that was really the thing that that I, I sort of cemented you know me for, for for being a racing driver and, and you know winning that championship and, and and also giving me the belief that I could go on and actually really be a driver that I could make a living out of this and be a professional. Uh, you're listening to Tyler's Long One. I'm John Hindorf, and that was the voice of Ollie Gavin. So British Formula Three Championship on the CV already the BRDC Autosport. You- McLaren Young Driver of the Year, that was already there as well. You must have been on a massive high at that point. So what was the next step? Well, the next step was supposed to be going to um, Adelaide and competing in the last round of the, the Formula 1 World Championship. And um, winning your British Formula 3 Championship, you get you are eligible for a super licence. 
So I uh, spoke to Keith Wiggins, and uh, who was running the team. And this was the end of 95, and it was the last season of Pacific. And this was, I was going to say, this is back with Pacific again, we should say, yeah. Yeah, so this is back with Pacific Grand Prix. And uh, Keith realised that he owed, you know, it's a, a pretty big favour uh, for, for everything that we'd done and, and, and the support that we'd given the team and, and, and sponsorship and other bits and pieces that had gone in. And um, I got all the way down to Adelaide. Um, I got fitted in the car. Um, I was being interviewed by Murray Walker and, you know, I was getting prepped for my first, very first Grand Prix. And um, and then it all started as sort of, this tarot card started coming down around me and just realised it was all just a complete sham and it was all just, you know, a joke really. And and it was it was rather humiliating for 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 me and and for my father who'd come out to see me and uh you know it was it was it was it was pretty sort of devastating to get all the way out there and and for for that not to happen i do you do you look back on it now i mean i can't imagine how you felt at the time but do you look back on it now it was never going to happen was it or was it or was it a genuine mistake or was there something else in play there no, I think it was never going to happen. I mean, when when the the powers that be, you know, the Bernies and whoever else looked at it, and and um, Keith Wiggins maybe brought up to to Bernie that I was going to drive the car, Bernie mostly just went, "What? You mean this? He's never driven this car. He's never done a Formula One race. He's never raced at Adelaide before. Uh, you know, do you want me to continue with the list?" And and. Uh, you know, it was at that point uh, that... Keith- Surely that hadn't just come up at Adelaide. That wasn't just brought to the attention of everybody at Adelaide, was it? No, it, it, it most probably wasn't. I mean, it, it, I went down to see Bernie and I stood outside his door in his office there at, 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 within, the, within the pit lane at Adelaide and, and uh, I said, when he eventually sort of came out and saw me, he said, Oliver, look, you know, You've won your your national Formula Three championship. You are eligible for a super license. We'd love to have you in the championship. He said, but with this team, no way. He said they are on the way out. They have no more money. He said the car you've never driven. You've never done a Formula One race. You've never raced here before. He said I've got a responsibility here, not only for your own safety, but for all the safety of others out there. And you hadn't even tested the car at that point, had you? I hadn't tested the car. I'd done nothing. And so he said, Oliver, you know. We cannot give you a license," he said. "It's not right. You need to. We'd love to have you back if you can get yourself with a decent team. But this is not a decent team. This is a team that's dying, and it's done. And I'm sorry. There's nothing more I can do for you. So it was. It was a pretty bitter pill to swallow. And I had to go and pick my dad up from the airport, and he was furious. And and uh, yeah, it was. It was all a bit of a bit of a just a, a very very difficult period and it really sort of took the shine off the end of of, of a great season of racing in 95 but you know these things happen and, and it's it's the it's the ups and downs it's the roller coaster ride that you have at that point what was your attitude as far as first of all formula one and, and secondly more genuine generally motor racing were you i mean nobody could have blamed you if you just said bollocks to all this and, and walked away yeah there was there, there, certainly it was it, it was a bit uh, dark at that period and uh, you know I was wondering you know this this certainly trying to get to the top in, in Formula 1 was was looking like it was going to be 
a big, big struggle. And, uh, you know, just to break into it was going to be hard work. And I think that that was the thing that really drove my decision to then go off and race touring cars in 96. And yeah. and I I ended up uh, going racing in, in, in the International Touring Car Championship for Opel. And uh, that all sort of came about through, through contacts with, you know, I've been driving a Vauxhall-powered uh, Formula 3 car. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I got the call from... Uh, Wolfgang Peter Fleur to go over and meet him and uh, he was the boss of Opel Motorsport at the time and, and we should say that Vauxhall and Opel are both GM brands ironically uh, given where you are um, at, at the moment uh, the ITC at that time was it may have been seen I'm sure to you as a bit of a step back from what you were doing but my god what a championship that was in terms of financing the manufacturer involvement and the machines themselves were pretty sophisticated and proper racing cars they were. I mean, they were extraordinary cars for the time. I mean, and even now, if you wanted to look at one of those cars, you go, "Wow, this this is almost state of the art." I mean, it, it was uh, semi-automatic, it had an air valve, uh, V6, rev to thirteen thousand RPM. Uh, it was, you know, four-wheel drive, ABS. It it was a, a, an amazing machine to drive and a great car. And when you had it on song, they were they were absolute dynamite. And uh, was it more like a a single seater with bodywork on, an F three thousand with bodywork on, than it was when we think of touring cars, particularly in this country, we think of family hatchbacks and repmobiles with steel bodies based on a on a monocoque shell. These were nothing like that at all. No, they weren't. And 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 you know, you, you, I suppose I could draw some parallels between the car I'm driving now and and that and that that touring car. I mean, it was in the in the way that the car and the, the chassis was all laid out and the way that uh, everything was put together. It was it was very very nicely done. And Yost with the team I was driving for, and they did a great job of putting the car together. It did. I did as as things turned out. I was uh, a little bit. Um, how can I say it? I was uh, Manuel Reuter's teammate, and Manuel was the was the main man to go for the championship. He was the golden boy. He was. Yeah, he was, and I think you can say I was his bitch for most of the year. <laughs> and, and but hang on, were you getting paid at this point? So is this your first paid drive? So you're a professional racing driver from that point onwards. Yes, this was my very first year of of, of earning money, and uh, you know it was fantastic. It was great to be a you know. You're a, a a works driver for Opel, and and you know all of a sudden you you're being paid, and it's it's marvelous, and you know you 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 think well, you know this is this is this is an amazing life to lead, and um, yeah, it was it was a again a, a season of ups and downs. I had some good races, some bad races, and, and but as the season wore on, I I would be walking to the garage and I'd just be watching my guys taking pieces and bits and pieces off of my car, which I knew was lap time. And uh, I'd say to them, well, what are you doing? And they said, oh, well, we have to take this off because it has to be a spare for Manuel's car. If he has a problem in, in warm-up or in the race, then we have to have this to put on his car. For so it's not even that he ha- he needed it at that point. It's just in case he needed it. Yeah, that was it. And oh, and wow. it, it was uh, it was a pretty bitter pill to swallow. And, and you know, I, I, I was talking with... You know the heads of uh, of Opel about it, and trying to sort of get them to see my my point of view. And the, you know, in fact, I was you know young and just trying to learn my way. And you know, there I was getting schooled by. You know, at that point, there were three really big names within Opel. You know, there was Ludwig, there was Stuck, and and then there was Manuel Reuter. And uh, it's it's it seemed that um, they just were playing. And Ollie Gavin. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> 
they were they were they were no disrespect no, no, no. but i can see yeah. i can see the hierarchy there yeah you know and and, and you know there was also jj leto there was um you know, many, you know, Yannick Dalmas, I was driving with uh, Alexander Wurtz, who's also in the team. There was uh, um, Altson, Uwe Altson, and, and you know, many, many others who were, were extremely talented and great drivers. But golly, they could play the politics brilliantly. And I was just a rabbit in the headlights. Like, Hang again. Let's just remind everybody. How old were you? Yeah, I was 21, I think, at that point. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, I was... Also, it was a German team and, uh, you know, I was naive thinking that, you know, everybody would speak English and, and I should have learned German. And because they told me at the start of all the meetings, oh, all the meetings will be in English. Don't worry. We got to the very first meeting with all the drivers there. The first question was in English and then every single other question after that was in German. And, and it was just, I should have learned German. And it was as simple as that. And, uh, you know, all of a sudden these conversations and, 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 you know, it would start off quite nice and quite easy. And then it would s- switch to the German and you can see, right, well, that's the conversation I need to be listening to or I need to be in on. Yes. And I need to be contributing to and, yeah. and shaping the way that it's going. And I'm, I'm, not only am I not being listened to, I'm not even having the chance to be involved in it. No, I'm I'm completely on the outside, and 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 that was just the way that this, this the season went. And uh, you know, you end, I ended up being cannon fodder, and I'm, and uh, you know, you you, uh, you you know, you take these experiences and you learn from them, and you and it shapes you, and you know, okay, right, and next time I need to make sure that I am hard lesson to learn at the time, though, Ollie, really. Yeah, it was. It was a pretty hard lesson to learn. And, and uh, you know, it seemed like I was, I was going th- from having, you know, a, a really crappy season uh, in 94 to having a good season in 95. And then, then 96 was started off well, and then it started to take a bit of a dive again. And I was thinking, golly, you know, this is, this is a real roller coaster. And, but then it's just motorsport for you. Mm. And, uh, you know, you just have to just knuckle down and get on with it. So, uh, end of that season in International Touring Cars, uh, ITC, in uh, 96. So, what plans... Was it a, a, a single-year contract, or did you have a two-year contract with Hobart? No, I just had a single-year yeah. contract, and it was just... The, 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 the actual championship burnt itself out. Yeah. I mean, they... They could never sustain the amount of money that they were spending on the cars, on the infrastructure, on, on the catering and on the hospitality. It was extraordinary. They're putting buildings up, temporary buildings, every race weekend. Oh, they would shame the stuff that you see at Le Mans now, you know, 20-odd 20 year, 20 years. And the cars themselves, we talked about how sophisticated they were. You know, we, we remember the Audi quick change rear end that they had at Le Mans from a few years ago in the R8. The ITC cars were completely modular engine, transmission and rear end, weren't they? So they could change them between the races. Oh, completely. And, 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 and you know, the budget was just flying out the window like there was n- no tomorrow. And, and uh, you know, halfway through the year, uh, Zach Speed started making a new car for 1997. It was going to be an all-carbon car. And, and that car never, ever, ever raced. It never, ever saw the light of day. And, you know, goodness knows how much was ever spent on that. But, you know, it's just those one of those things that happen and it just gets lost in, in, in the midst of time. And, and, you know, so this season, the, the, well, that championship was done and then it had to be reabsorbed back into the DTM. And, uh, and Opel pulled out. Uh, well, they didn't pull out, but but they certainly had a bigger restructuring, and so then I had to go off and find something else to do in '97, and I started doing, trying to do a bit of Formula Three Thousand bit here and there, and and again that was another sort of season of not really doing that much, and then I started driving the safety car at the Grand Prix. I was going to say, but you got into ironically having had that awful experience with Bernard Charles Ecclestone um, back in Australia, you ended up being at the front of many a Formula One race. How did that come about? 
it, it came. You must have had a super license by then to be able to drive the car, did you? <laughs> yes, so, <laughs> so something like that. But uh, but 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 I I ended up um, I ended up getting in contact with Charlie Whiting through Peter Briggs, and because uh, Charlie and Peter are big old mates from years back, and. Uh, Charlie Whiting, race director, and Charlie um, sort of said to me, well, Ollie, um, we need someone to come and drive the safety car um, at the British Grand Prix. He said we'd had, um, ever since uh, the situation with, um, you know, the cars being, not being that, that fast on, uh, being led round, but not that fast by, by the safety cars, we need to really uh, up our game with it. We need to have a proper decent car. We need to have a proper decent driver. And, uh, you know, they, they said that a lot of lessons have been learned from, from Senna's accident. Yes. And, yes. and, you know, this was one of the things that they, they had to do. So they were in the throes of doing a deal with Mercedes to, to run a, a full-time car and then have a full-time driver with it. And so 97 was a bit of a trial for me. So I started, I did, I did uh, Silverstone and I did, and I did about three or four others uh, through the rest of 97 and 98 and 99 I did that full time and uh, no pressure on you there of course in the full glare of a hundred billion zillion people worldwide leading round you know the 20 odd best cars and drivers in the world and there must have been a couple of times I remember one particularly rainy episode where you were pacing uh, the field around where it was looking to get uh, very hairy indeed yeah, I'd I'd had a I've had a number of experiences um, in in the pace car at the Grand Prix, which you know, so sort of turn me white, and I wake up in the middle of the night, sort of thinking about and still, yeah, still, <laughs> and uh, one of them was Magni Cor, and yeah. and uh, I think it was ninety eight, and and we, I was sitting in the car, and and the chap was sitting with me, was a guy called Peter Tibbetts, and he still does it now. He's he's the sort of main communication to the race control, and I was sitting in the car, and I can hear all the chatter going backwards and forwards on on the radio, and, and I can see also that there's a huge black cloud coming over and uh you just know it's just gonna absolutely tip it down at any minute and uh then you know we've been told okay stand by you know get ready the rain's coming and then it just the heavens open and then we get sent out onto the track and you know f1 cars are in and around us and we're on out on the track and i go through the first couple of corners at magni core and uh down the back straight and it is raining cats and dogs i mean it's just unbelievable you know really torrential rain now is this a specially built mercedes at this point because we know that they've got all kind of tweaks on the cars now but how how stock and standard was this car or were there a, a few tweaks and twinkles on it no it was a pretty standard car at that point <laughs> it was a pretty standard car it was a clk 430 i think amg and it was a pretty standard car i mean it had you know lights and whatever else yeah, and, yeah. and you know in the, in, in, but nothing nothing trick nothing fantastic well i get onto the back straight and uh the wipers stop working <laughs> and I'm, I'm thinking holy shit this is not good and I'm frantic. And there's actually, there was a camera inside the car. Mm. And um, I think it was only broadcast on Bernie's little uh, TV platform. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's only a few people who could, a few people who could access it at the time. And they, they said to me after the race, they said, the, the look on your face when the windscreen wiper stopped, you frantically working the stalk, trying to get it to go again. And you think all these F1 cars behind you. And anyway, got them working again. By the time I got down to the hairpin, managed to navigate my way down there at Magnicor, came out of there into the next sort of right left, and there was a massive puddle that I'd missed, I hadn't seen, right on the apex of the right hander. And I hit it, and the thing went completely sideways. I thought, oh, this is it. You know, I'm dead. 
not necessarily from the accident, but all I could see was Bernie Eccleston. You know, all you could see was his face and just... Who's the guy who's ruined my race? Who's the guy who I am now having to talk to TV companies about because the race has had to be running overtime or whatever? And you're thinking, I'm never going to drive anything ever again at this point. Never, ever again. (laughs) I'm done. This is it. My career is over. I'm finished, washed up. And uh, I just saved it, managed, brought it back. And I sort of just sort of got it slowed down for the next corner. And I, I then slowed down a little bit and started to creep around. And then I noticed that the cars behind me were just disappearing in the mirror. And uh, the F1 cars just couldn't, uh, couldn't handle the, the wet weather or the rain. And then I came round to that exact corner where I'd had the moment uh, the lap before. And there were four cars off. And, uh, you know, it, it was at that point they were really close to actually just stopping the race because it was just getting that bad. But the, 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 the storm passed. And um, I think I was out for some th- 13, 14 laps. And I was oh, I was ghostly white by the end of it because it was just getting so slippery and slick. And just and that's, that's a heavy car. I mean, that's a road car. It's a heavy car. It's a yeah. big, heavy car. I, I take it it was an automatic as well, was it? Yeah, it, it, it was. And, you know, there's, you know, you put under a lot of pressure, and I suppose you put yourself under a lot of pressure to sort of keep the speed up. And, you know, there's you know, just chalk and cheese between a road car and an F1 car on, on a racetrack. And, and between a road car and a racing car, never mind an F1 car, people don't, I don't think people understand even performance cars on a racetrack never feel as good as they do on the road because you are putting them through just so much more, aren't you? Yeah, yeah, without a doubt. And, and you just... The thing was just completely out of sorts when you compare it to a to a Formula One car. So I I was very happy when I was called in and 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 uh, and I could go and lie down. Uh, so uh, so that was uh, you know just there was there was many many sort of instances like that. And you know Bernie was used to walk up to you before the start of the race. You'd be standing there getting ready to get in the safety car, and he would always have his radio in his hand, and he used to poke you in the stomach with the aerial and go, "You ready, boy?" You ready? And uh, uh, yeah, yes, Bernie. Yes, yeah, yeah. And uh, you know, it, it, I think that he just did that just to sort of get you on your toes. Yeah. You know, don't think that you can just take this for granted. You know, and he well, had a ulti- way of motivating people. Ultimately, that's got to be fun because you're part of the F1 circus and you're, you're going around the world. And you know, you're seeing it, it, it's like you know what all of us do when we're going around and involved in this. It's like the circus coming to town every fortnight, isn't it? You see the the same people. It's clearly worthwhile to you financially because you were getting paid to do it but ultimately was it slightly frustrating as well in that you were so close to what had been maybe still was your dream and that you were involved in it at a level that most people would never dream of in fact most people listening to this would cut off various parts of their anatomy without any anaesthetic to be able to drive the f1 pace car but ultimately that's not what you really wanted to be doing was it no it wasn't what i wanted to be doing and and i think that's sort of really told by by the sort of middle part of 99, you know, I was I was racing off and on in some different things. I'd, I'd done a, a Porsche Super Cup race and I'd done uh, the odd Formula 3000 race here and there. And I'd actually done a full season of Formula 3000 in, in uh, 99. And uh, But I realised that I needed to get out of it. I needed, I needed to stop it. And uh, if I was going to make some serious headway with my career... And I realised that sports car racing was the, was the way to go, and and uh, you know, so by the time I got to sort of two thousand, um, I decided that I was going to go over to the United States. 
Now, I might be wrong because I'm getting old and slightly senile, but having not seen you for quite a few years other than on the television, um, I think the first time I remember you in any great detail in America was the American Le Mans series um, at Petit Le Mans, but you were driving a prototype. And I think you put Paul Newman off going down through the S's at, at, uh, at Road Atlanta. What year was that? I, th- I didn't put Paul Newman off. He, he, t- <laughs> he took me out. <laughs> uh, no, it was. Um, now, See that? I love. I love the way that any driver will always <laughs> got to spin it. But I think that that was the my first year with John Field and uh, two yes. two thousand. Um, I went over to um, Grand Am and uh, started driving for... I got my first ride with uh, Scott Schubert and with Phil Cryant Racing at Grand Am. And, uh, I, you know, I, I I did quite a few races in that. But I, Why America, by the way, before we come on to that, in all seriousness, why, uh, you know, what that... You'd been travelling the world, all right? You know, you, you're a lad from Northamptonshire and, and round its environs. You, you haven't moved too far from, from where you were brought up. You'd been travelling the... Why then do you throw your hat in the ring in America? Well, it actually comes sort of back, sort of full circle to the Keith Wiggins deal and, and Pacific Grand Prix. At that time, in 2000, Keith Wiggins was the sales director at Lola. And um, I went to see him and I said, Keith, I need some help. Uh, you owe me a massive favour. Uh, you still haven't paid me back from the embarrassment of Australia. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, you know, you need to try and get me in a car in, in, in America. And he says, right, well, I think I might have an opportunity for you. And, he's, and, he's, and he said, okay, right, if we can come up with a little bit here and there. He says, I think you can get you into the Phil Crichton car at, um, at Homestead for the uh, Grand Am race. And I was like, Homestead, where's that? And he said, Florida. And I was like, okay, never raced in America, never been to America okay, all right, when do I need to go? And so just got my stuff, stuff together and I went out there and met Phil Crichton. And, uh... This was the very, very early years of Grand Dam, of course. The American Le Mans series only started, remember, in 99. So was this the first year of Grand Dam? I think it could well have been. And, um, you know, the, the, it was very f- sort of formative. You know, it was very... They were really finding their way in the Grand Dam series. And, and I turned up there and I loved the car, really enjoyed driving it and... Uh, I'd and that was what? What was the car? It was a Lola B2K10. And, uh, you know, it was it was a brand new car um, that Scott Schubert had just bought and was Phil Crichton was running it. And it was, it was I just loved it. I thought it was a fantastic car. Qualified on pole. And uh thought, brilliant. And I was in the press conference after the, ra- after the um, qualifying and uh, asked all these questions. Never been to America before. First time here, starting on pole. Brilliant, fantastic. And then the door opens and the boss of Grand Am comes walking in and uh, it were, he, he had Maraboldi with him. And and he, he just interrupted everybody, walked up and it almost just sort of dragged me out of my seat and said, Oliver's car's been found to be illegal. He's out and here's your new pole sitter. And uh, I was just sort of frog marched out the room. <laughs> and I was like, what? Uh, what, what, what's happened? And so then I had to go down and find Phil Crichton and say, you know, what's what's going on? And he says, oh well, we had a bit of a problem with the airbox, and you know this, and then that, and then you know, and so we start the back of the grid and ended up finishing fourth. And it was it was, was Baldi in a triple three at that point. Yeah, yeah, he was in a triple three, and uh, yeah, Dyson were there, and and that was actually my first experience with meeting James and meeting Andy Wallace and meeting uh, James Weaver. That would be yeah, James Weaver and Andy Wallace, and and you know all these sort of great British sports car drivers. And, and James was fantastic. 
Yeah, they'd been a bit naughty, though, because they'd been out in the States for some years and kept it very, very quiet and kept it to themselves because it was actually a pretty good gig, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, it was a fantastic gig. But, you know, you say they keep it very quiet. Most, they most probably did. But as soon as another Brit came over, mm. they were extremely welcoming and... James really sort of took me, took him, took me under his wing, and sort of showed me the ropes, and and sort of said, you know, introduce me to this person or to that person, and and you know, really tried to help me. And um, two tall blokes together, you say it's that something to do. At least you haven't got his punch on for strange coloured socks. <laughs> no, not not yet. Maybe it'll come in my older years. I'm not sure, but <laughs> but he's uh, but he was he was fantastic and, and and a great help as well as Andy was, you know, and and um, you know, really still great friends with them now, and. Um, you know, it was it was really the start of my American racing and the start of me being involved in the American Le Mans series and Grand Am. But where it all fits in back to the story of Paul Newman and, and Petit <laughs> Le Mans, and it was John I wasn't going to let you away with it. So I'm glad you've come back. To right. Well, John Field was there at at Homestead that day, and uh, he saw the speed uh, of the, both myself and of the new car. And Keith was desperately trying to sell him a brand new BTK 10 and John uh, put his money where his mouth is and, and bought a new car and Keith said okay well why don't you get Oliver to drive with you and uh, the new car turned up at Road America and uh, we raced it drove it and uh, Keith engineered it and in fact I ended up sharing a hotel room with Keith Wiggins and I, thought, I don't think we need to know about that that yeah. sounds particularly unsavory knowing Wiggy as I do <laughs> Well, please tell me there was two beds. Yeah, there was definitely two beds, but it was just <laughs> it was just so strange the fact that here was the guy only 5 years beforehand who was running a Formula 1 team and he was saying whether I could have, you know, a drive in a Formula 1 race or not and now he's engineering this car at a Grand Am race at Road America, a track I'd never been to before, which Actually, by chance, I thought was just amazing. You know, the, the car was amazing around that particular track. Road America was just absolute dynamite, and uh, we had some problems in the race. But anyway, that's just you know, details. But it was just it was an amazing event, and, and it was it was really stuck in my mind as as me starting in, in my racing in America. So I then went with John to Petit Le Mans, and uh, we. Uh, we had a pretty decent race. I think we were sort of there or thereabouts, and and then uh, this situation occurred with with paul and unfortunate incident yeah well i was i was catching these these porsches and one of the dick barber porsches was was being driven extremely well and one of them was all over the road and and uh, i was trying to remember who paul was driving for and i remembered it was dick and then i tried to pass him coming down through the s's and he just didn't see me and uh I didn't actually know it was Paul then. I could, it wasn't it wasn't confirmed to me, but we touched and we spun, and Paul went off into the wall. The car went off into the wall on the left hand side, and he he it was, a hard hit. it was a really big hit. And I spun off down into the into the gravel, and the exit of turn five, and my, the car was facing the track, and so I could see all the traffic coming towards me, and I could also see Paul the, the car off the Porsche off to the right hand side in the barrier, and it took ages and ages for the door to come open on this car. And eventually the door came open and out stepped Paul and his hair was immaculate. I mean, he'd been, I think he'd been doing it in the mirror. And uh, But then as he took his next step, he started to stumble. And I thought, oh no, he's, he's hurt his leg or his foot or his ankle or what, something. Then he went to shut the door and the door fell off, almost for, for comic effect. And then he sort of tried to get over the barrier, then he fell over the barrier. And then I was, oh, I was thinking, oh no, it's Paul Newman. And I've had this crash with him and he's 
broken his leg and well, I'm never going to be able to get out of the track alive and so I get back to the pits and and um, John's furious and so I think oh I've got to get away from John so I go down to see Dick Barber to try and explain and Dick Barber's furious as well is he oh Dick's furious and Dave Price was there for some reason and Dave was just adding fuel to the fire just fanning the flames <laughs> just saying Ollie you're done you're never going to get out of here alive. You say, all those women up there, they're all looking for you and they're going to kill you. And, uh, <laughs> and I said, well, where's Paul? And they said, oh, he's gone to the hospital. Oh, it's major. He's broken his leg. It's this, it's that. And, it, oh, you know, he's going to be out of action for, for months. And uh, I, I never caught up with Paul after that. I never, never saw him again. No. no, no, no. I never got to talk to him about the situation and, and, and what actually happened. And... Uh, I think he did hurt his leg, but he didn't break it. And uh, but but Dick was furious. Dick said, "You know, you've wrecked one of my cars." And I tried to explain to him, but Dick wouldn't have it. And you know, it was just it's just one of those sports car motor racing incidents. And you, you know, again, experience. I have to say that of all the people in the LMS paddock through all the years that I've been there, thirteen odd years now, um, who I wouldn't like to be on the wrong side of a tongue lashing. John Field and Dick Barber are right at the top of the list of people who are, oh, no. Um, so after that somewhat inauspicious start um, with the what was then, of course, still the fledgling American Le Mans series as well, having only been formed uh, a, a year or so before, that was, I think, the third running uh, of Petit Le Mans. Um, how, did the, how did the tie-up with now what we've, you know, we've become expectant every time we see a, a yellow Corvette roll out to see the name Ollie Gavin or Olivia Gavin obviously <laughs> uh, attached to one or what other of them how did how did that come about because it's, it's another GM brand of course well yeah I mean it was it it all came about through me driving for Celine and in 2001 I was uh God, how could I forget that? Given yeah, yeah. that I was involved in building the car, you were involved in it. And um, 2001, or uh, well, the end of 2000, things were sort of on, starting to sort of bubble along. And I got talking with Daryl Cousins and a few other people. And this was at Rear Malik who yeah. were designing this new car for for uh, Steve Celine. I, I mean, just as a bit of background, so the listener knows, um, the originally he'd been asked to develop the Mustang that Celine was, was running and they decided between them that the Mustang didn't have any more development in it and so a brand new car was created and that was the S7R. Yeah, and uh, it, uh, you know I was involved in quite a few of these early running of it and I, and I, and I at the end of sort of 2001 I was... Uh, Oh, no, end of 2000, sorry. I was I was at Laguna Seca to see the running of the car for the first time. And I think there was Terry Borcella there. There was uh, um, oh, Tommy Kendall and uh, Ron Johnson. And, uh, you know, we got to see the car running. It looked fantastic, but it was unreliable and, and uh, needed some work sort of being done on it. And, and then it was all they were trying to put a deal together for 2001 and it was off and on off and on off and on and eventually it, i got the call to go to sebring and i got to sebring and the car was dynamite there it was fantastic but it's been run by franz conrad yeah. and franz was just this little human dynamo that could just do everything and anything oh yeah he made the Duracell bunny look like a sloth yeah exactly i mean and he he was just he was doing deals with Goodyear one day and then Dunlop the next and then we're back in Goodyear's and then 
you know, we had Ferodo breaks one day and then we had, you know, Padgett's and then we were going, you know, he was just doing deals with whoever he possibly could to get the thing out on the grid. And, uh, and that was his first competitive outing, wasn't it? It had been shown and, yeah. and displayed, I think, it's at, La- at Laguna. and it, But it ran for the first time against what then was the might of the GT category, which would, would have been the Vipers, I guess, at that stage. Well, the, uh, uh, it was Corvette were there, for sure. and Because that's sort of how I ended up going to Corvette. Was, was, I, I'd qualified the car on pole at, at Sebring. And then uh, we started the race, and Franz started the race. And he had had some contact, and the thing was starting to fall to bits. And we only had one rear, one tail for the car, one tail, and there was no other lights, nothing else. And this this tail was hanging on by one catch. And if that catch had let go, and this tail had come off, we were going to be done because we couldn't we didn't have any more bodywork. But <laughs> Franz managed to bring this car around, got it into the pits, and uh, even before the car had stopped, he was out of the car. And he had got taken all of the duct tape and all of the wire and all of the other bits and pieces and pliers and whatever else and scissors. And and he was putting the tape and the lock wire on the car himself. He wasn't trusting anybody else to do it. He finished the job off, threw all the, tire, the, 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 the tools over the wall, jumped back in the car, started up and drove it out. And and we were all sort of standing there. It was this whirlwind that just sort of happened in front of us. And we couldn't believe it. So he carries on going, comes in, we switch out. And the thing's fast, and we're making some headway. And then the Corvette started running some trouble. And then all of a sudden, we find that we're in the lead. And then we find, well, we've got a couple of couple of laps lead. And then uh, then the lead Corvette's got a problem with its, uh, or, or the, the main Corvette that we're battling with, got a problem with its starter motor or something. Yeah. And we ended up winning. Yeah. And I remember being in the car for the last stint of the race. Nice. And, uh, well, I, I came into the pits, and I thought I was getting out. And I got all my belts undone, and I got the door up. And as I pulled up, I could see Terry Borcella standing there on the pit wall with no helmet on and his eyes as big as saucers and him thinking, Ollie's getting out and I'm not ready. <laughs> and we're going to lose the race. And so they quickly stuffed me back in the car and I thought, oh, I've got to drive another hour. Okay, right. So belt's all back, done back up again. And I could see Doug Feehan and Gary Pratt standing just behind Terry. And they were there hoping that we were going to fail and that it was, there was going to be a problem. Well, roared out the pits. And we ended up winning, and and that was. Yeah. I have to say, I kind of felt sorry for Corvette because they had battled against the might of the Orica Vipers in the early years yeah. of that category, and there'd been some decent battles. And when Viper went away, they must have thought, "Hey, great!" And then this brand new kid on the block, the Celine, uh, came, and in its very first race, won. And you must have thought, "What have we got to do?" Yeah, I think that that was definitely the case because up to that point, this car had never ever run any more than three hours, mm-hmm. and it was it was it was almost like a freak experience where everything just seemed to sort of line up and fall into place. Because even from then onwards, I don't think that the car ever ran faultlessly for twelve hours in any of its life. I mean, it was always in trouble, always having reliability issues and problems. And it just so happened that that 12 hours at Sebring, it just all sort of seemed to fall into place and, and, and we won. And it was off the back of that that all of a sudden they went, and this I've seen this happen now from being at Corvette for a number of years. They see somebody that they they sort of, they go, right, that guy's really good uh, or, or that guy's quick and, and to stop them winning or doing well, we need to take him away and put him in one of our cars because mm. we've, you know, we did that with... 
um, you know, Olivier Beretta, yeah. or we did that with uh, with Antonio Garcia, or mm. you know, Marcel Fassler, or you know, Jan Magnussen. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it, it, there's you know Tommy Milner. Mm-hmm. You know, many many ex- sort of, of of examples of them taking away from another manufacturer to strengthen our our, our hand, and and that was pretty much what happened. I, I went to drive for John Field, two thousand and one. Grand Am race at Watkins Glen, same weekend as the uh, the Cup cars racing there, and um, Ron Fellows was giving out the trophies on the podium at um, the Grand Am race. He was driving in the Cup race, and um, I finished second with John, and uh, he gave me the trophy, and he said, "Ollie, have you got a minute afterwards?" I said, "Sure, yeah, great." And uh, and and never say no to Ron because he's such a nice bloke. Yeah, exactly. And uh, I, I saw him at the back of the podium. Uh, there at Watkins Glen, and Ron said, uh, "What are you doing next year, 2002?" I said, mm, "I don't know. I, I'm really not sure." He said, "Well, why don't you give uh, Doug Feehan a call?" He said, um, "There may be an opportunity." And he said, um, "You know, just give him a call and, and and see what happens." And so, I gave Doug a call. Um, I then got myself out to Laguna Seca for I think one of the last rounds of the of the ALMS in 2001, and um, talked to Doug Feehan there. And did a deal there and then, and I've been a Corvette driver ever since. Difficult for you, for a question for me to ask, a uh, difficult question for you to answer, probably easy for me to ask. But if you could pick out one memory from your last ten years of of Corvette driving, which one sticks out for you? Would it be the the first class win at Le Mans? Would it be one of the do or die? wins at various ALMS races that have have come about what to you sums up or is if you like even more substantial than that what do you really look back on and and with a bit of pride well there's yes it is a difficult one to answer because you know I've 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 done a huge amount of racing with Corvette and experienced some huge highs and huge lows but you know the I would say one of the best experiences I ever had was was winning Le Mans 2006, um, raging heat, um, you know, third year in a row, same driver lineup, um, crew. Um, it was it was extraordinary to have that. You know, we won it twice, and then we thought, okay, coming in for the third time, there I am with Ian Magnussen, Olivier Beretta, and Aston Martin were just so strong and and you know they were really coming for us that year 2005 they were super fast and and they'd had a few problems and issues and then 2006 their car was even quicker and we were trying to we were battling to get our car faster and we thought we were really sort of made the difference and but it was just nip and tuck the whole race it was super close and it was so hot and I remember they were struggling with the heat in their car and we were struggling with the heat in ours and and it was just that 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 victory that year. I felt that I drove well that year. I felt that I made a difference. Um, I, I felt that I was sort of leading leading the car, leading the team, and you know that was really a, a, a fantastic result. And I'd also had a bet with George Howard Chapel before before the race, fifty quid. That we'd oh, 50 quid. You got George Howard Chapel of Aston Martin Racing to put fifty quid down. Yes, I did. I did. And to this day. George George paid me. He paid me as he was walking out the paddock that that night after the race. 
but the look on his face when he was handing that fifty pounds over was was pretty tough. You could see it was really really hard for him to take. You know, they'd 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 been so strong throughout the race, and and you know, it just I think that that relationship that that Corvette had with Aston Martin was this amazing rivalry, fierce rivalry, but but respect, yeah, serious respect, and and. You know, I, I really respect George and, and, and Darren and all the guys there at Aston. And, and, you know, they're a great bunch of guys. And it's it's also strange because I'm a Brit and I'm driving for, for the American manufacturer and, and the big American team. And and it, it feels kind of strange that, you know, uh, that I'm against them in, in some ways. But but I, but I uh, you know, that was that was an amazing event, amazing race, amazing result. And... I didn't get back from the podium for about an hour and a half because I had to go and get my my blood tested and urine sample and all the rest of it for for drug testing, which was another whole story. But my wife was desperately trying to find me. Helen was trying to find me for hours. She thought I'd just just fallen over and just passed out, <laughs> collapsed. But nobody told her that I'd gone to this for this drug test. But it was it was an amazing race, amazing event, and that was that was really the the standout memory for me. Ollie Gavin, thanks very much for your time. Thanks, John. This programme is a Radio Show Limited production. Tell your friends there's more at RadioLeMond.com.